Welcome to the listener's commentary on the New Testament. Your guide is pastor and theologian Dr. John Whitaker, and the heart behind these studies is to help you better understand the text of Scripture so you can more fully live it out. It's all about helping you learn and live the Bible. Here is the book of Matthew. All right, welcome to a listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Before we begin our study of Matthew's Gospel, just a reminder that the listener's commentary is made possible by the generous support of people just like you. It is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry. And so if you are one of those who support this ministry and make it possible, thanks a ton for your generosity and your support. If you have been blessed and impacted by this ministry in any way, would you prayerfully consider joining the team of supporters? You can do so by swinging over to listenerscommentary.com and clicking either the Give button and setting up a one-time or recurring monthly donation right there. All those uh, donations go through an umbrella organization called World Family Mission, a registered uh, nonprofit. And so that's one way to set up a monthly donation right there. Or you can sign up for the Study Hub and give whatever you can afford through the sign-up page for the Study Hub. And that as well is a great way to support this ministry. So thanks a ton for your support. May God bless you for it. All right, let's jump into our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And we begin with the backstory. Matthew is one of the three synoptic gospels in the New Testament. What's a synoptic gospel? Well, that's a fancy word that just means to see with or to see together. And it refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke because those three gospels all basically tell the story of Jesus very similarly, and hence they see it together. They see it the same way, whereas John tells the story very differently. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. Now, if you haven't listened to the series just giving an introduction to the gospels in total, it would be helpful to you to go back and do that because it really gives a background to the world of the gospels, to what is a gospel and all of that. But at the outset here of Matthew's gospel, let me just note that the word gospel refers to news specifically to good news. In fact, in the ancient world, the word gospel was often used of royal proclamations, a proclamation from the governor, a proclamation from the emperor, or something like that, that proclaimed you know, peace or the end of war or uh, some other good thing that the emperor was going to do. In fact, the birthday of Caesar Augustus, Luke chapter 2, Caesar Augustus, Caesar's birthday was heralded as a gospel, as good news. The gospel of Caesar's birth was proclaimed, that he brought peace to the realm, and he was actually described as savior of the world. Um, and obviously, Jesus's gospel is sort of subverting that political propaganda about Caesar. And so in the New Testament, the word gospel refers to the good news that the one true God is saving the world through his anointed king, Jesus himself. And so that's, in essence, what the gospel is. Jesus is king. He died for the sins of the world. God raised him from the dead and exalted him as supreme king and ruler over the world. And so now he's calling all people everywhere to repent, submit to Jesus' kingship, and to follow him. And Matthew's gospel that we're going to look at uh, here in this study is his proclamation of this great news that God is now saving the world through the kingship of Jesus. 
And so with that, let's talk about the backstory to the Gospel of Matthew. Who wrote Matthew? Well, technically, the Gospel of Matthew is anonymous. But the name Matthew has been the only name associated with it from the very earliest times of the church. In fact, uh, a early church father by the name of Papias, who was the uh, church leader in the city of Hierapolis in the first half of the second century, that is sometime between 100 and 150. In fact, he wrote this down uh, maybe 120, 130, maybe as late as 150. But Papias, the church leader, somewhere in that first half of the second century, wrote this. Matthew, therefore, wrote the oracles in the Hebrew dialect. Oracles just refers to the words or the message or the teaching. Uh, in the Hebrew dialect, and everyone interpreted them as he was able. So that was written uh, in the generation after the time period of the apostles. Another well-known church father, Irenaeus, in his famous book Against Heresies, right around the time, uh, about 185, wrote this, Matthew indeed produced his gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching in Rome and founding the church. And, and Origen, a little bit after Irenaeus wrote, um, among the four gospels, which are the only indisputable ones in the church of God throughout the world, I have learned by tradition that the first one was written by Matthew, who was once a tax collector, but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the unanimous testimony of the early church. Um, there is no contradic contradictory testimony, no other opinion. Um, that gives any doubts. The unanimous testimony was this gospel was written by Matthew. And so that's the reason, even though it's technically anonymous, that's the reason his name has been associated with it from uh, the time of the apostles until now. What do we know about Matthew? Well, we don't know a whole lot about him, surprisingly, in the gospel. We do know that he's also called Levi, a good Jewish name. Um, Matthew was the name by which his, uh, he became known in the gospel accounts. And before his conversion, Matthew was a tax collector, a fairly prominent tax collector, it seems. Uh, the feast that he gave in honor of Jesus is described in Luke's gospel, Luke 5.29, uh, um, as a great feast. And that indicates that Matthew must have been a fairly wealthy man who had a large home where he could host such a great feast. When Matthew was called by Jesus, he immediately left behind his tax collecting business and followed Jesus. And in the lists of the 12 apostles in the New Testament, Matthew is listed as one of them. And that's about all we have about Matthew. Matthew's never mentioned in any place in any of the Gospels except in his call by Jesus and then his listing in the 12 apostles. That's the only places he's mentioned. Uh, the last mention of Matthew in the entire uh, Bible is the list of the 12 gathered in the upper room after the ascension that we find in Acts chapter 1. And that's it. And after that, we have nothing. And the, the only thing we know about him beyond that time period in Acts 1 is an early church tradition states that Matthew remained in Jerusalem along with the other apostles teaching there for about 12 years, and then he moved out to preach in other lands. Uh, beyond that, we know very, very little about him. Now, when did Matthew write his gospel? Well, the short answer to that is we don't really know. It has become common among modern Bible scholars to say that Mark was the very first gospel written, 
and that Mark was one of the sources used by both Matthew and Luke for their Gospels. Now, that's possible. It's possible. But we don't really know. Uh, modern scholars assume that's the case. I mean, there's several reasons, but they assume that's the case by and large because Mark's Gospel is the shortest. And based on that assumption, they assumed then that the other writers used his material and then just kind of expanded on it. Again, it's possible. That assumption is based on another assumption, namely that the Gospels were written later in the first century. Now, personally, I just don't think it's responsible to build whole theories based on something that's so uncertain. But New Testament scholars have done that. They based whole theories on the relationship between the Gospels and how they all got connected. On, and, and all this is really based on a lot of assumptions. One strand of early church tradition, those people who were actually closer in time to the original writing of these documents, one strand of early church tradition says Matthew was actually written first. So the fact is, we don't know exactly when the Gospels were written or in what order they were written. We don't know. And so scholars make bold proclamations about that, but we should at least have enough humility to admit we don't really know. What we do know is they were all written in the first century. Um, that didn't used to be the case, but with finding of manuscripts and all that, we, we now are convinced that they were all written in the first century. Even John was written in the first century. So, for those who believe that Mark wrote first and Matthew and Luke used him, which, by the way, I find it's possible, but it's like um, Matthew, out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew is the only apostle. It, in some regards, seems like, and he was an eyewitness to the event, so it seems like he wouldn't need to borrow Mark. But, be that as it may, uh, however they were produced, for those who think Mark wrote first and Matthew and Luke used him as a source, uh, th those people put the date of Matthew after 65, again, based on the assumption that Mark had to write after 65. Um, and, and so even if that's the case, I still think Matthew should be dated before AD 70. Uh, and the reason for that is because Matthew 24 presents Jesus as foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem and it gives no indication that that event has happened yet, and that event happened in 70. Uh, as noted above, there's an early belief that Matthew was written first, and, and if that's the case, um, then you would have to date Matthew maybe even earlier. In fact, some have dated Matthew in the 50s, maybe even the late 40s. Again, we don't know for sure. Um, the early tradition that we noted above includes that Matthew wrote, quote-unquote, in the Hebrew dialect. Now, we don't know exactly what that means either. It either means that Matthew wrote originally in Aramaic and then it was translated into Greek, or it could mean that phrase could mean that he wrote in a Hebrew style or a Hebrew approach. We have no manuscript evidence uh, for Matthew other than Greek. And so many do conclude that it, it means Matthew wrote for the Jews in a style that was fitting and appropriate to them, that he, he represents sort of the Hebrew style of approach. Again, we, there's just things we don't know for sure. Um, and so when did Matthew write his gospel? We don't know 100%. Uh, we can fix the date somewhere between 50 and 70. That's a fairly broad range, uh, but 
that that seems to at least be a safe bet that he wrote somewhere between the year 50 and the year 70 and he wrote specifically for the Jews and so that's the next question who was Matthew written for well again we don't know the exact destination but what is clear both from the external evidence testimony of people like the church fathers we mentioned above, as well as what we read in Matthew itself, is that Matthew wrote his gospel uh, for, an, uh, for a Jewish audience. Um, presumably, the, a lot of the early Jewish Christians, but also maybe for some Jewish unbelievers who were kind of trying to figure out, is this Jesus really the Messiah or not? Matthew wrote for Jewish readers. Why do we say that? Well, in addition to the external testimony, when you read the gospel, it's full of Jewish themes and Jewish emphases, law, prophecy, kingdom of heaven, things like that. Uh, Matthew makes frequent use of the Old Testament. In fact, there are 53 citations of the Old Testament in Matthew's gospel, and it and about 75, 76 allusions to passages or events or things from the Old Testament. And those uh, appeals to the Old Testament come from all parts of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. They come from the law. They come from the writings. They come from the prophets. And so Matthew is well-versed in the Hebrew Scriptures, and he appeals to them in his presentation of Jesus uh, his good news, his gospel about Jesus, because he's writing for Jewish readers. In fact, uh, when you read Matthew's gospel, you'll find that it's full of Jewish customs and Jewish culture, none of which are explained. In the other gospels, a lot of those details are explained because the audience is Gentile, but not Matthew, because he's written to a Jewish audience. And, and so, who is Matthew written for? Well, Early Jewish Christians and maybe even some Jewish non-Christians as they're trying to sort out, is Jesus the Messiah or not? Why did Matthew write his gospel? What was the purpose for it? Well, as with all the gospel writers, the basic purpose is to proclaim the good news that Jesus is king and to do so by recording the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus. So Matthew fits that basic purpose. That's what he's trying to do. He wants to present Jesus as king to his audience. And so he does so in a way that's appropriate to them. So in keeping with his original audience of Jewish uh, Christians, Matthew writes to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes and promises. And so if we want to narrow down a specific focus, that's really what it is, to present Jesus as king by showing how he is the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes and promises. He is uh, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. In fact, that's right where the gospel starts with the genealogy and all of that. He is uh, the bringer of the kingdom of heaven. He is the, the prophet like Moses that was uh, foretold in the book of Deuteronomy. He's the true interpreter of the law. And he is the Messiah, the one they've been longing for and hoping for. And in this way, he is the one who brings the entire story of Israel to its intended goal and climax. That's really what Matthew presents in his gospel as he tries to show who Jesus is and what that means. So how does he do that? And that is, how does Matthew arrange or organize his material? And while Matthew is similar to Mark and to Luke, they're the synoptic gospels after all, it's not identical. Matthew has his own way of telling the story. 
And Matthew's gospel includes far more teaching than the other gospels do. And so you get this collage of stories, snapshots, right? Snapshots about Jesus and Jesus' interaction with people, uh, all stitched together and then interwoven with lots of teaching. And so throughout Matthew's gospel, that's what you get. Collage of stories interwoven with lots of teaching. How does Matthew arrange that? Well, there's no clear... Um, like super clear structure to Matthew's gospel. Uh, I think Mark is a little more clear. I think Luke is a little more clear. But there do seem to be two key structural markers for how Matthew has sort of wanted to tell his story about Jesus. The first structural marker is geographical. And the second one is related to uh, chunks of teaching or blocks of teaching in his gospel. So let's talk about both of these. Let's talk about the first one, the geographical structural marker. Um, the Matthew seems to have arranged his gospel uh, by focusing on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and then a short little section where he's moving closer to Jerusalem, and then finally, uh, Jesus enters into Jerusalem as king. And so there is this geographical flow to Matthew's gospel. So the entire first chunk of Matthew's gospel is set in Galilee from about chapter 4 through chapter 18. And in, even though we know from other gospels that Jesus regularly visits Jerusalem, particularly around feast time, that's the way John has structured his gospel, um, Matthew barely even mentions that Jesus was ever anywhere other than Galilee for these first 14, 15 chapters. So from chapter 4 to chapter 18, Jesus in Galilee doing ministry, you get uh, these snapshots of his life and his interactions with people interwoven with blocks of teaching there in Galilee. Then... In 19.1, it says that he left Galilee and he went into Judea and to the other side of the Jordan. Technically, it's called Perea, the other side of the Jordan. So he goes down south to Judea and Perea. And so 19 and 20 is set there in that context as Jesus moves closer to Jerusalem and onwards towards the climax of his ministry. So Galilee and then a short couple chapters where he's in Judea and the other side of the Jordan. And then finally, in chapter 21, we get the triumphal entry and Jesus enters into Jerusalem as king. And the rest of the story of Matthew's gospel is set there in Jerusalem except for the very final conclusion where Jesus returns to Galilee after his resurrection to meet with his disciples and then uh, to commission them to go and make disciples. And so that gives sort of a geographical structure to the book, and it presents Jesus as the king um, moving to his city of Jerusalem. We get the return of the king to Jerusalem. All right. So that's the geographical order of events. The other key structural marker in Matthew's gospel are the words, after Jesus finished saying these things, or something like that. And these words show up after various blocks of teaching. And those words appear five different times in Matthew's gospel. And so most scholars think then that there are uh, five teaching blocks, which Some have made a bigger deal out of that than others. Maybe, you know, it's like the five books of Moses or whatever. And it's possible for all of that. But this structural marker at least helps us see how Matthew's sort of thinking about uh, how he's arranging some of this uh, teaching material. And so you get it right after the Sermon on the Mount. 
in chapters 5 through 7, after Jesus finished saying these things. Um, then you get it again after the teaching in 10, 11 through 42, after Jesus finished saying these things. And then it shows up another time after all the parables in uh, Matthew 13, 13, 1 through 52, and after Jesus finished saying these things. It shows up then in 19, 1, uh, where it says, after Jesus finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into Judea and the other side of the Jordan. And so that one's connected with the geographical marker, right? And so most scholars actually identify 18, 1 through 35 as a teaching block. You know, you get... Uh, 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, after finished saying these things. Chapter 10, a teaching block, after saying these things. Chapter 13, a teaching block, after saying these things. And then uh, you get it in 19.1, after saying these things. And so most see 18.1 through 35 as another teaching block, although it is the least defined. There's some teaching leading up to that, and there's some teaching coming right out of that. Uh, so that one's the least defined teaching block. And then you get these words, the structural marker, in 26.1 again, after all the teaching of chapters 23 through 25. And so in this way, Matthew pre presents Jesus as teacher. So the geographical seems to present um, Jesus as king moving to Jerusalem and returning to Jerusalem. Here with the teaching blocks, Jesus is teacher. He's the true interpreter of the law. He is the rabbi who uh, comes teaching with authority, as it says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so as one uh, scholar says, Matthew would be concerned that uh, so many modern Christians are more influenced by popular culture than they are by the te teachings of Jesus Christ. He is to be our rabbi, our teacher, and we're to believe that he knows what he's talking about, and we're to listen to his teaching and to do what he says. And so uh, Matthew has arranged his gospel, um, it seems like, in these two ways, with this geographical move towards Jerusalem and showing us how Jesus is our rabbi and we are to be his disciples. And not only are we to be his disciples, at the end of the gospel of Matthew, we're to go and make more disciples and we're to teach them not just to know everything that Jesus commanded, but to do everything that Jesus commanded. So that is the backstory to Matthew's gospel and kind of a broad overview, a broad map of Matthew's gospel. So as we begin to work through all the different parts of the gospel, hopefully we at least have a picture of who we're listening to and how he has organized this story so that we can hear Matthew's message and we can live as faithful disciples of Jesus.